Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go indeed. Welcome back, one and all, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Chris coming at you, two days late, and I guess $2 short. $2 short this week. Uh, I really like to stick with the Wednesday release for these. Today is Friday, so um, got really busy, man. Got really busy. But here I am. Um, I, mean, I, I could have saved this one for next week, but um, we'll get something else to you next week. Uh, today... Well, you know what, before I tell you what we're going to talk about today, um, although you know because you uh, already clicked on the uh, the video and saw the um, or the the, uh, the podcast, rather, and saw the title, we're talking about Sir Humphrey Davy again, uh, the book that he wrote before he died called uh, The Last Days of a Philosopher. Um, if you remember when we talked about that in the first part, uh, I think we're going to end up with one more of these, so it'll be a three-part series, but in the first part, we talked about... Humphrey Davy, the great scientist, the guy that invented the Davy lamp, the guy that was the president of the Royal Society of England, uh, had the same role as Sir Isaac Newton. Oh, and by the way, Humphrey Davy was a knight as well, like Sir Isaac Newton. And you might wonder, if you're American, you might wonder what kind of, uh, of an honor that is. Um, and, you know, being a knight, being knighted by the king or the queen. Um, but it's only happened to two academics in the history of the English monarchy. Once for Isaac Newton, we all know how important he was, and once for Sir Humphrey Davy. And this is the guy we're talking about. So this is a well, well-respected scientist. Um, he has a tremendous amount of credentials and contributions and this is the guy that, before he died, wrote the craziest book I may have ever read. It reminded me, reading the vision, the first chapter that we already talked about, reminded me of reading the book of Revelation for the first time when I was a teenager. Like, just completely incomprehensible, completely mysterious, completely powerful. Um, and that's what you get from Humphrey Davy. And you might, you definitely didn't expect it. You know, if you'd read everything Humphrey Davy had published up to this last book, you never would have expected it. Um, so I won't take too much of my thunder away from the introduction I've prepared, but I do want to say uh, one other thing, and that is uh, the Two Tongues Podcast officially has a website, thetwotonguespodcast.com. Check it out. Um, we're I'm pretty excited about it. I don't know if Kyle is. I'll have to ask him on Sunday. But I'm pretty excited about it. it. Makes me feel like uh, like we're you know a little bit more legit now. Got a you got a spot on the old internet. Um, you know, it's not like you couldn't find us there, but now we have a place where you can go. Uh, all all of the latest episodes will be there. Uh, we'll have a blog there. Uh, we'll have um, 
a place where you can message the podcast. So if somebody wants to be a guest or, you know, there's something you want to ask or what have you, there'll be a place where you can do that. Uh, there is a place where you can do that. You can go there right now. All right. So uh, with the highlights out of the way, this is the last days of a philosopher part two. I'm calling this one immortality. All right, I'm just going to jump into my prepared intro. Uh, here we go. Where we left off was the vision from the Colosseum. Davy recounts his tale of revelation, how he traveled to the heavens, accompanied by a higher being, who showed him the expanse of outer space, the planets, stars, and comets. He showed him the beings that exist on each planet, and explained how they were once earthlings too, but have ascended spiritually and been reborn on a higher plane of consciousness. And that's the crazy part. It's this higher plane of existence Davy sees as the other planets in our solar system and beyond. So there's this really obvious thread of like a reincarnation type of idea that is part of Davy's vision. It's a very important part of Davy's vision, but it's not just about, it's not just about the immortality of the soul that it gets recycled, you know, that it never, it's not born and never dies. It's also, it's also about, it's also about something more down to earth that that when you die and are reborn, it's not like the Buddhist supposes that if you live a, a, a good life and you've built up good karma, that you might be reborn as a rich man or you might be reborn as a god, you know, as, as something better than, once, than you once were um, on the earth. No, no, no. Davy says it's possible for you to be reborn into something greater or, or lesser, just like the, a Buddhist might say. But where you're reborn when you die is not in the heavens and uh, in, in understood as some spiritual place, but literally in the heavens. You die on earth and you come, become reborn on Mars. You become reborn on Jupiter, that kind of thing. So it's really strange, you know, and it, I think about that, like going back to the days of Davy, you know, um, this was a long time ago, you know, the 1800s. So is it, is it, is it possible that with the limited knowledge that we had of the cosmos uh, at that time, that people might have actually supposed that other planets were other worlds in the sense that we might today say like other dimensions or other realities, like the place that that somebody religious might say the place that where God exists or or supernatural beings exist. They're not they're not here on this earth. They're not even really here in this physical plane. They're somewhere else, you know, somewhere like in another dimension. Um, and that's not what we get from Davy. It's like, look, Davy's telling us the universe is all there is, this great creation, this infinite place, and it's filled with places where you can be reborn. And it's something really interesting about that. It's something really novel about that, 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 that he's spiritualizing matter, you know, the material world is the place where, where we can ascend spiritually. Some other place in the material world, not in some spiritual place, not in some ethereal place beyond the veil, but the here and now and space and time. And I think that's super important because it's something that will relate to panpsychism, this idea that everything is consciousness, that God is consciousness and so is the material cosmos, that there's one substance, you know, that makes up 
makes up reality, like Alfred North Whitehead would say. So in this part of the book, Davy turns to dreams, his dreams, and he speaks of them as visions too. They're revelations, his dreams. So altered states of consciousness, it seems, hold the key to understanding the deepest mysteries of being. And it's worth noting, again, that everything you're about to hear, like the vision of the Colosseum, were among Davy's very last words. He was literally dying when he wrote this. These are the things he wanted the world to know. These are the facts, so important, so difficultly earned, that Davy had to share them before he died. Why? For the benefit of mankind. The story we're, ta- we're talking about, the vision of going out up into space and seeing all the crazy stuff that he showed us in the vision, these are the kind of things that he thinks must be shared because something about them is so important that if, if more human beings come to appreciate and understand what he's getting at, that it will be a benefit to mankind. You know? Like indoor plumbing, like running water, like vaccines. You know, a benefit to mankind like that. Maybe greater. All right, I just want to remind the audience that uh, Last Days of a Philosopher was written like a platonic dialogue. If you guys ever read any of Plato's works, it's kind of like a play. There's different characters involved, um, usually two primary uh, back-and-forth speakers. And uh, Davy wrote the story like that, and he gave himself and his friends false names. So they're like characters in a play. So I just want to uh, point that out while we go through this. And the story itself is, is, well, it's wrapped up in a story. So it's not just what he has to tell us, but it's put, it's set like a play. So where this begins, the gang has left the Colosseum. Remember where Davy had the vision. And now they're going to Mount Vesuvius. So they're just traveling around Italy, seeing all the ancient sites, all the stuff you might want to see if you, if you went there. Um, and so they first went to the Colosseum. Now they're going to Mount Vesuvius. And the scene around them is this, you know, this this um, crater, you know, the the volcano crater, and they're up towards the top somewhere, looking down at the valley where they can see ancient ruins and they can see the town in the distance and all that sort of thing. And the scene evokes discussion, the same as it did when they were at the Colosseum. This time, about human reason, about instincts, and revelation. So they're trying to understand what human reason is, what instincts are, and what revelation are. Are they the same? Are they they different? Where do they come from? But these are all faculties that human beings seem to have. And they want to understand what they are in light of what Davy said he saw in the vision at the Colosseum. So they discuss the progress of civilization and how religion and culture transform both rising and falling over time, and across people from all over the world. Then the discussion turns to Christianity, and whether or not it constitutes the purest form of religion, which I think was pretty interesting. Um, They go back and forth discussing the nature of God and man and the afterlife. So this is sort of opening the scene. And that brings me to the first section here, which I'm going to call On Dreams. 
All right, so not Davey here, but one of his buddies. He he opens like this. And again, um, I told you that Davey and his buddies were given fake names for theatrical effect. Um, uh, Philelthes is what they're calling Davey. So I'm just telling you that because I'm about to read that name. So one of his buddies says, This recalls to my recollection an idea which Philelthes started in the remarkable dream which occurred to him in the Colosseum. Namely, that no important facts which can be useful to society are ever lost, and that like these stones, which though covered with ashes, are sure to be brought forward again and made use of in some new form. All right, so he, so his buddy here brings up the crazy vision from the Colosseum, and something that was said during that, you know, that we talked about in the first episode. He said that no important facts which can be useful to society are ever lost, and he says, he, he uses the analogy by saying, look at the ruins, the stones of all these ruins you see around you. Like, they're not going to be, you know, uh, garbage, for lack of a better word. They're not going to be unused and sitting there in the way forever. They used to be something, something great. And one day they'll be reused for something else. Maybe they'll be carved into a statue. Maybe they'll be used for the foundations of a new building. But that those things are, are never gone they just change and transform and are reused for different applications. And there's something about this that is, it reminds me of something from psychology that says, I mean, there's a quote that goes with this that I can't quite remember, but something that something that's said in psychology that human beings um, spend a lot of brain power and a lot of, you know, attention of their consciousness to learn things. And once you've mastered them, they become unconscious, meaning you don't have to think about them anymore. You can just perform them. Like for me, it's typing on a keyboard. It was a good example. You know, I wasn't born able to do it. I learned it, you know, it was very difficult. But now you know, I can type really fast and really well. And, uh, you know, that's what I mean. I no longer have to think about it the way I used to have to when I first started learning. So there's something about that when he says that there are no important facts which were ever lost. That they, that they once earned, once gained, that they be, become a part of us somehow. Um, you know, how is, is a good question, but that they become part of us somehow, that they become part of our unconscious, and we can, then, we can then rely on them without having to think about them. It's almost like they exist and they don't exist all at once. And it's interesting. It, it points to that paradox, you know, that we talked about with the Syzygy and the Ouroboros before, the way that God is is um, conceptualized in, in, by the ancient people, like, like a union of opposites. You know, there, there's something there that is impossible to understand. But this also, this recycling thing, it also reminds me of the reincarnation that Davy talked about in his vision, you know? We're going to reuse the stones that used to be part of, part of the, the you know the uh, the ancient Roman buildings. We're going to reuse them for some new building. Just like whatever it is that animates you, your soul, when you die, will be reborn as something else. It'll be reused. So it's pointing, I think, to these cycles in nature. That there's no beginning or end, but that it's an eternal process. You know, nature is an eternal process. That's something that Spinoza and Whitehead would would wholeheartedly agree with. And this idea of souls being recycled back and forth, back and forth, that that is, a, is an image of a, of a cycle, you know? All right, he goes on, he says, 
I regard this vision or dream as a mere web of his imagination in which he intended to catch us. Okay, so this is one of Davy's buddies saying, I think you made up the vision. I think you're just trying to, you know, uh, get one over on us. And this is where Davy jumps in. He says, I will acknowledge that, that the vision in the Colosseum is a fiction, but the most important parts of it really occurred to me in sleep particularly in which I seem to leave the earth and launch into the infinity of space under the guidance of a tutelary genius. And the origin and progress of civil society from likewise parts of another dream, which I had many years ago, and it was in the reverie which happened when you quitted me in the Colosseum that I wove all these together and gave them the form in which I narrated them to you. Okay, so one of his friends calls him out on this, which is pretty funny, I think. It's just, it's what a buddy would do. <laughs> calls him out on his crazy, crazy hippie nonsense. And, and he, Davey admits, yes, um, I didn't really have that experience sitting there at the Coliseum. What he did have is a memory of a crazy revelatory dream that was exactly as he explained his vision. What happened when he was sitting there at the Colosseum in this reverie of deep in thought all by himself, you know, in this mysterious place in, in the night, in the ruins of the Colosseum, is he, he brought back to mind that dream that popped back in his mind. And then another dream he had popped back in his mind, and it was like they were connected. And suddenly he had this new experience of these two dreams kind of coming back to his attention in full force in a new way, you know, combined with one another. And it, it struck him so powerfully. It was like he had hints of this revelation in the past. And while he was sitting at the Colosseum, it all came together for him. And uh, so he's admitting that, it, you know, it didn't happen quite like he said, uh, which I think is interesting. Um, but that's how kind of it goes down. And, and one of his friends says, Of course, we may consider them as an accurate representation of your waking thoughts. So he's saying, well, it, you know, it, do you really believe what you what you said, you know, when you described your vision? Do you really believe that? Do you believe in this reincarnation idea? Do you believe in this progress of this of the soul that's possible uh, and that they that there are that there are manifestations, embodiments of of uh, consciousness, just like you and I on Earth that exist on other planets, even in our solar system? Do you believe all that? Do you really believe that, Davy? And he says, I do not say that they strictly are so, yet I have more than one instance in the course of my life, a most extraordinary combinations occurring in dreams, which have had considerable influence on my feelings, my imagination, and my health. Okay, so Davey's saying, look, I, I can't say for sure that I wholeheartedly believe all of this crazy stuff. But what I can tell you is that I've had these strange dreams in the past at random times that have had deep, deep impacts on me. The vision of going into space was one of them. And he said that there are times when those dreams have the considerable influence on my feelings, my imagination, and my health. So imagine, imagine a dream being associated with, um, well, your well-being, you know, how you feel. You have a dream and suddenly you wake up and it, and it changes your mood for the day or for the week. Uh, he says it changes his imagination, so maybe it's altered the way he thinks, and I can, I can relate to that. 
You know, I, I've said before, but when I had a mystic experience back in 2019, it changed the way I think. And I would definitely say the way that I imagine, because while I'm thinking, it's not like it used to be. It's not like I'm thinking in, by organizing, by, by supposing and organizing facts or anything like that. I, I think in images now. And that's more true when what I'm thinking about is really difficult to understand. But I think in images, which I never did before, and it's, it's completely, completely baffling, by the way. And his health. So now he's saying here that his dreams have had some impact on his well-being, but on his, on his actual health. So there might be a connection between the power of his mind, um, you know, what's happening to him in his dreams, and a connection to physical reality, to the here and now, to the health of his body and mind, you know, to the functioning of his psyche and his imagination. And his dreams have some real impact on the physical world. So his buddy, his buddy jumps in and says, we shall perhaps set you down by the side of Jacob uh, Baim or uh, Emanuel Swedenborg. And in an earlier age, you might have been a prophet but pray, give us one of these instances in which such a marvelous influence was produced by a dream. So you can see yeah, what his buddies are doing. His buddies are saying, yeah, 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 give us, give us an example. If you're, tell, you're telling me that your dreams are that vivid and that powerful. Give me another example. And he's, he's, also, he's also related Davy to these two guys, Jacob Beeman and Emanuel Swedenborg. Um, they're both mystics um, from the 17th century. So if you, if you read them, and we, I think we, we may have read some of this already on the podcast, but if you read them, you'll, you'll see what I mean. These are very mystical thinkers. So he's saying that Davy is, is in the company of these types of people. I think it's important to note that, that those people weren't entirely well-received. Um, uh, Swedenborg was a scientist and changed to this sort of hippy-dippy... Um, mysticism in his older age, you know, in his 50s. So it's important to mention that he, basically his buddies are putting him into this category, and it's it's a little bit divisive. It's a little bit like an insult. Um, Swedenborg actually <laughs> claimed that he could travel to heaven and hell at will. So in his later life, he claimed to be able to do that, which is sort of what happened to Davy, right? He, he, he got with this genius, genius, this genie, this supernatural being who took him up into the heavens. You know, he visited heaven, just like Swedenborg said that he could do. And I think that's interesting. Um, I'll give you a little bit of Swedenborg here. He, he said this uh, in one of his writings, Spirits appeared in front to the left who were said to be from the earth Mars and who declared themselves to be holy. So that's the kind of shit Swedenborg was saying. When he says that they were from the Earth, Mars, he just means the planet Mars, right? And they declared themselves to be holy. And isn't that exactly what happened to Davy? When he was taken up into heaven and, and, and seeing, you know, space and the planets, and he was shown creatures that exist on Mars, on Jupiter, on Saturn, right? And they were more holy than him. They were higher beings than, than those that exist on Earth, I just think that's quite interesting that there's a precedent for that. And it goes back to Swedenborg, who I guess I'm going to have to read now. All right, so then we go, we go back to Davy, who says, now remember, this is Davy telling about one of these dreams, one of these other dreams that had a uh, mystical impact on him. It goes like this. 
almost a quarter of a century ago, I contracted that terrible form of typhus fever. My illness was severe and dangerous. As long as the fever continued, my dreams were most oppressive. But when exhaustion came on, and when the probability of death seemed greater than than life, there was a change. I remained in an apparently senseless state, but my mind was peculiarly active. There was always before me the form of a beautiful woman with whom I was engaged in the most interesting and intellectual conversation. Her figure for many days was so distinct as to form almost a visual image. As I gained strength, the visits of my good angel became less frequent, and when I was restored to health, they were altogether discontinued. All right, so this is the first bit. Um, seems like Davy was a sickly guy. So he's had, you know, these spouts of really, really bad, you know, uh, sicknesses to the point of dying. Uh, when he wrote this book that we're reading now, he was on the, on the point of dying. So, you know, uh, you know, bad luck, I suppose. Uh, but in any case, he, he says he's sick. He's got these, you know, this fever hallucination where he sees this woman. Who, he knows she's not there, right? But he sees her. And he talks to her, and she speaks to him, and he has this conversation with this invisible woman, you know, and what comes to my mind, and he refers to her as an angel, but what comes to my mind is something like Carl Jung would call the anima, you know, he, he describes how, um, how everybody has a part of ourselves, a part of our psyche that we're not connected to, you know, that's something he calls the unconscious, it's part of ourselves, but we don't have access to it, it's it's simultaneously part of us and not part of us. And what happens really commonly in, in dreams, and you see it in mythology as well, is that the part of us that we don't have access to, the unknown part of us, we, we project that in our dreams. And, and if you're a man, it's almost always the projection of a woman, right? It's the opposite of you. It's the part of you that you ha- don't have access to. So if you're a man, it's almost always depicted as a woman, if you're a woman, it's almost always depicted as a man. It's the animus or the anima. And so Davy, being a man, of course, sees the vision of a woman. And I can't help but imagine that it may be his anima, especially given this, the fact that he's sick and dying. And maybe he's closer to, you know, these spirits that dwell within him. He's closer to his unconscious because he's on the brink of death, something like that. And then as he gets better... The, woman, the vision of the woman gets less frequent and, and di- goes away, disappears like a ghost. And here's where it gets good. He says, 20 years after my first illness, I was exceedingly weak from a severe malady. So now he's sick again 20 years later. He says, which for many weeks threatened my life. And when my mind was almost in a desponding state, I again met the person who was the representative of my visionary female. And to her kindness and care, I believe I owe what remains to me of existence. All right, pump the brakes. What he's saying here is that 20 years after he had this vision of this angel woman, and he spoke to her and she spoke back, you know, like his unconscious speaking to him, right? 20 years after, he has another terrible illness where he's almost dying. This time, a real-life woman is there. He doesn't explain why. Was she a nurse? You know, he doesn't explain. But a real-life woman was there to, to help him through it. 
And when he saw her, he recognized in her the exact same face as he saw in this angel woman from 20 years before. He describes her as a young woman, which makes me think that 20 years ago, she, she likely wasn't even born. And he saw her face and had a conversation with her. And then 20 years later, he met her. And he says he owes his life to her. Amazing. So if that's, you know, not proof enough for his friends that his dreams are powerful and real and have a, a real connection to the here and now, um, or maybe even showing him visions of the future, um, I don't know what's going to convince them. And at this point, uh, at this point, the discussion between Davy and his buddies, it turns to religion. So it's like the, the idea that they began talking about dreams. Then they start talking about an apparition, you know, this woman, this angel, this ghost. And so that that's the bridge to get us to this conversation about religion. And it starts with one of Davy's buddies like this. I suppose in the early state of man, he imagined that he enjoyed the actual presence of the divinity. I take this to be the result of religious instinct. In early times, I suppose these ideas were so vivid as to be confounded with impressions. But as religious instinct became feebler, the vividness of the impressions diminished, and they became visions or dreams, which with the prophets seemed to have constituted inspiration. I do not suppose that the supreme being ever made himself known to man by a real change in the order of nature, but that the sensations of men were so modified by their instincts as to induce the belief in his presence. All right, there's a bunch packed into that, but this is, this is interesting. So what he's saying here is, in the early days, you know, when man, when man was living hand-to-mouth, you know, caveman style as a savage, you know, without all the benefits of civilization and culture, when man had just be, begun, that he might have imagined that he was in the presence of God, that he spoke to God the way that Adam speaks to God in the Garden of Eden, right? That, that in that state, human beings would feel the presence of God all the time. And if that sounds strange to you, I would just say, imagine living in a, a hunter-gatherer lifestyle where you're starving a lot of the time, where your, your, your happiness and health is sort of at the whim of nature, of mother nature. You have to hunt to survive, and every single day is dangerous to the point of death. You know? Imagine that. Imagine how careful you'd have to be, how significant everything would seem. Um, what's around this corner, what's in the bush, what's making that noise, um, you know, all of these things. It would feel as though everything was significant because you have to pay attention to them because if you don't, you might miss an opportunity or, you, or even worse, you might miss danger. And so everything would seem to be alive. Everything would seem to be staring at you. Everything would seem to be simultaneously dangerous and potentially beneficial. And that's the world you live in. That's a very different world than we think of ourselves living in. We've subdued all those dangers. We've made predictable all those benefits. You know, the early man didn't have that. So might that have felt like a deeper connection between man and, and the world? Might that f have felt like God 
was in man was in the presence of God constantly. And you think about how how these early religions, these animistic religions like those that you see depicted in Native America, in Sub-Saharan Africa and Australia and places like that, some of the Pacific Islanders and so forth, that they believed that the world was full of spirits, that everything was alive, you know? And that would be how you would how you would imagine the world to be when when things were always so dangerous and your life was always hanging on by a thread and your connection to life and to the world was so much more intimate than it is for us. So I'd ask you to think about it that way. Maybe it is true that in, in that type of a life, human beings did feel like God was around them. And then he says that as religious instincts become feebler, Right, So it's like almost like we're growing out of it or we're getting used to it or something. That the vividness of the impressions that we used to have that made us believe that God was around us all the time, that those things start, got, got marginalized and pushed um, into these narrower and narrower experiences like, like visions or dreams. So it wasn't just that you could, you could encounter God you know, wherever you were. It was that you could encounter God in sleep or in, you know, extraordinary circumstances like a vision. And then he says this interesting thing at the end. He says, I do not suppose that the supreme being ever made himself known to man by a change in the order of nature. So I think what he means there is like um, ancient people would think that there was a sign from God, you know, like a, like a, a meteor goes across the sky, meteor shower, that's a sign or something like that, or a volcano erupts, and that's a sign from God. I think what he's saying is that those sorts of things aren't God communicating to man. And I think that we would mostly agree with that, right? But then he says, but the sensations of men were so modified by their instincts as to induce the belief in his presence. Here he's saying that there's something about our perceptions, there's something about our consciousness or our sentience that that is like an instinct towards the belief in God. And that's interesting. So it's like just being conscious yourself. It instinctually gives rise to a belief in God, to recognize maybe God within, you know, the thing that makes you alive, the thing that exists in your body that you call yourself. That may be, that may be something more like God. The same thing that the Native Americans believe, the spirits that exist in everything all around, all around you and within yourself, that's kind of the, the image that comes out here. Then he goes on, he says, I believe in the immortality of the sentient principle in man. So I'm going to stop there for a second because the immortality of the soul, that's a really common phrase in philosophy and in religion because we generally believe that that there's something in us that is undying. And we, in a religious context, we call that spirit or soul. And he says the same thing, but he, instead of using the word spirit or soul, he uses the word sentient principle. And I just think that's interesting. It's like exactly what Carl Jung would do uh, decades later. He would... He would replace this idea of spirit or soul with all these religious connotations that people, um, you know, recoil from, and he would call he would call it consciousness, and it makes it more palatable, especially to, you know, scientific types, people that are ambivalent to 
the idea of spirituality or divinity. And this is exactly what we see here in, in the book. I believe in the immortality of the sentient principle in man. This destruction of life is only a change of existence. To the supreme intelligence, the death of a million human beings is the mere circumstance of so many spiritual essences changing their habitations. Oh, man. So, he, when he says destruction of life is only a change of existence, he's, he's talking again about the immortality of the soul and referencing this reincarnation idea from Davy's vision that whatever it is that, uh, you know, that animates you, whatever it is that's responsible for your life, your consciousness, that that thing doesn't die. It just changes existence. And then he uses this interesting example of if a million human beings died. It's not a tragedy. All it is is a... Uh, you know, a whole bunch of people moving out of one of one apartment complex at the same time and moving into a new one. You know, that's the analogy that he's bringing up. It's just your soul moving from one state of existence to another. And this idea of the immortality of the soul being maintained in this conversation, I think is interesting because we're not talking strictly in a religious context, you know. We're talking in a scientific and a religious context simultaneously. All right, he goes on, he says, When Christianity took the place of Judaism, the ideas of the supreme being became more pure and abstracted, and the visible attributes of Jehovah and his angels appear to have been less frequently presented. All right, that's interesting. So it's important to note, obviously, Davy and his buddies were Christians. You know, the... the the Western world was was dominantly Christian at this time. Um, religion was far more acceptable and far more common back then. Um, so you got you got to put yourself in that in that perspective when you've got these scientists and philosophers talking about Christianity and Judaism and whether the God of Christianity is somehow better than the God of Judaism. It's kind of an interesting topic for scientists to talk about. But what he says here is interesting. He says that the way that Christians see the supreme being is more abstract than the Jewish idea. And because it's more abstract, it's more pure. So my question is, and probably yours too, is why is more abstract concept of God more pure? And the answer seems to be something like, because it is less associated with the material world and more associated with the fundamental reality behind the material world, behind the veil of perception. It also reminds me of a phrase from the Bible that says, Make ye no graven images. And I have to remind Davy here that uh, that comes from the Old Testament. That's a Jewish idea, not to make an image of God. So I think that the abstractness of the deity that the Jews imagine is probably not any more abstract than the one the Christians imagine. Um, so I'm not, you know, I, maybe I'll, I'll uh, push back on him a little bit there. But I do think it's interesting that to abstract the idea of God is to make it more and more generally applicable. So it's like the more abstract God becomes, the easier it is to see God in everything. The more specific you are about God, the less, the less you can... I mean, you're, you're carving away possibilities when you do that. And what God is, is something like possibilities. You know, infinite potentiality, as I always say. 
So the more specific you can be about God, and the more confident you are making a picture or an image of God, what you're doing is chipping away at all of what God is and leaving and leaving only a small bit of it left, a small bit of it you can wrap your brain around. And that there's there's actually that's actually a bad idea in the search for truth. It's a bad idea to do that because you're not you're not examining what God really is. Not not the extent of what God really is. You're chipping off a little piece of him and pretending that that's the thing. It's not the thing. And the Taoists in China are really good about making that um, prohibition or, or making that warning. In the Tao Te Ching, they say things just like that. That um, the Tao that can be seen is not the real Tao. You know, the Tao that can be spoken of is not the real Tao. The, the moment you say anything about what Tao is, you're off the you're off the mark. You're further away from the truth. You know. All right, this bit's interesting. So. Uh, Davies' buddy says, The infinite and eternal mind fits the doctrines of religion to the minds by which they are to be embraced. I see no improbability in the idea that a part of his essence animated a, a human form. There can be no doubt that this belief has existed in the human mind, and the belief constitutes the vital part of religion. All right, so there's a lot here, but this is great. So when he says the infinite and eternal mind, he's talking about God. He says, God fits the doctrines of religion to the minds by which they are to be embraced. Okay, so what he means is my mind and your mind, right? We're the ones that are supposed to embrace God and embrace religion. He's saying that that that, that comes from the mind of God. So the thing within us that seeks after God, the thing within us that believes God is a possibility, that entertains the idea of eternity and the infinite and all that sort of thing, that we, we have those ideas within our own minds, within our own sentience, because where that sentience comes from is God himself, the infinite and eternal himself. And then he says, I see no improbability in the idea that a part of his essence animated a human form. So while he's saying that that the mind of God exists in human beings, and that's why we get this notion of God, because it exists within us, that he says that is the same, very same thing that animates us, that makes us alive. I'll say that in another way. He says sentience, consciousness, which is, in this context, another way of saying the Spirit of God that exists within us and is responsible for us being alive. He also says that it constitutes the vital part of religion. So not only is it responsible for us being alive, but it's responsible for us recognizing that God, as a concept even, exists or can exist or might exist. It's the same part of us that allows us to entertain and seek after something that is beyond all of material reality, something that's not finite, like all of our experiences and everything we've ever known, something that's beyond that, eternal and infinite. Amazing. And this idea of the God within, you know, as, as being a vital part of religion, you know, basically what that is, is identifying yourself, identifying with God. And I've talked about that before, that that is part of the mystic experience, is understanding all things to be one, understanding the thing that you think generally, that you think that God is, 
as something indistinguishable from yourself and from everything else. And that, my friends, is one of the earliest illustrations of panpsychism. That all is consciousness. From the mouth of Humphrey Davy. Amazing. All right, he goes on. To God, the infinite, little and great, are equal. A creature of this earth, however humble and insignificant, may have the same weight with millions of superior beings inhabiting higher systems. So that's interesting. Now that's obviously a callback to the vision where Davy saw these higher spiritual beings or higher material beings living on Jupiter and Saturn and on in the comets and all that sort of thing. And he says here that those superior beings who can do all this amazing stuff that human beings can't do because they're greater than us, and as Davy described it, right, that all of those creatures that we saw in the vision are no more significant than the human beings on Earth. And so you have a paradox again. You have this conflict between Davy describing them as higher beings with greater, you know, uh, potential, with uh, higher forms of intellect and and more pure and truer understandings of God and, and reality. That those things are no different than the lower things, like like the beings that exist on Earth, like you and I. And I think that is a reference to this fractal nature of reality that comes through in mystic intuition. It's that the one, that you can have the one in the many, and you can have the many in the one. The oneness existing simultaneously with the diversity of the world, that is the paradox that's being pointed out here. And he says that one is worth the same as the other. And that's another way of saying there is no difference. There is only one and that is the message of the mystic experience. And then he goes on, he says, My first principle is that religion is an instinct intended to give to man what he cannot obtain by use of his reason. Now that's interesting. You know, there was a guy named Kant who wrote a book called The Critique of Reason, The Critique of Pure Reason. And there is reason to think that reason is not foolproof that it's something that can lead us astray. But it also is a great tool, reason, rationality. It's also a great tool to find truth, you know? And when he says here that religion is an instinct that's intended to give man what he can't obtain through reason, it sort of makes me think that reason is something that can be used to understand the material world, you know, the things that you can hold and touch and, and experience. The things that you can't, you know, those unconscious things, right? The other part of ourself that we don't have access to. How do we understand that? We can't use reason to do that. We have to use something else. And those are our religious instincts. I think that's, I think that's right on. All right, then Davy says, Revelation may be regarded as a constant principle belonging to the mind of man. And that's something like saying that the mystic experience is always possible, that the experience of God, like we started talking about, like Adam in the garden, the direct experience of God is always a possibility, right? It's always a potential latent within human beings. So if you've never had one, you can have one. It is possible for you to have one. And I think that's true. 
And I think that having that experience is important. In my life, it's maybe the single most important experience, period. Um, at least spiritually. All right, so at this point in the story, we have a little change here. The, the gang meets a mysterious stranger near the summit of Mount Vesuvius. And they begin to speak with him. And the thing is, his intelligence is uncanny. Even supernatural, actually. And they speak about the history of the earth. And this guy is like a sage. He, and he never tells them his name. He's just called the stranger. And he seems to know lots of stuff. Really, really high-level you know, scientific knowledge. And they speak of the layers of rock that make up the earth. And they speculate about how and when they were formed and of the fossils that are found or missing in each layer. And this stranger, he basically lays out his impression of biological evolution based on this geological evidence. It's really kind of interesting, especially going back to when this book was written in 1829, you know? Uh, that was decades before uh, the origin of species. And then that brings us here to the next bit, which I'm going to call Back to the Future. This next section is called Back to the Future. All right, so the story shifts to the present day and reveals that the author's recounting uh, a story from many, many decades before when he was a young man. And now old and sickly, he desires to return to his travels one last time. You know, he's, he's re reminiscing about going out with his buddies, seeing different parts of the world when he was young. He's, he, he, he yearns to, to do that again, to have that adventure, you know, before he's, before he's not able to do that anymore. And he and one of his friends, uh, they leave for maybe their final adventure. And they go to the mountains of Illyria. And after a near-drowning incident... They find themselves serendipitously reunited with the sage stranger from, from Davy's youth. They bump into that same unnamed stranger that they talked to on the, on the tip of Mount Vesuvius, but this is years and years later. And they start to discuss what life is. You know, they tackle the hardest questions, remember. They're always talking about, you know, the hardest questions, the origins of God and religion and the afterlife and biological evolution and all these things. They, they, they're talking about the most difficult and mysterious questions. And so this is, should come as no surprise. They start talking about life, what it is, what's necessary to create life. Can it be created? And one of the crew suggests that life or consciousness depends upon air or breathing. Since, after all, when one ceases breathing, one also ceases living, you know? And the stranger responds, I think it probable that some subtle matter is derived from the atmosphere, connected with the functions of life. But nothing can be more remote from my opinion than to suppose it the cause of vitality. So the stranger's saying, no, I think, it's, I think it's more than just air. You know, air may be necessary for, for sustaining life, but it's not the cause of it. You know, there's something more going on. Then he says, I know there have been distinguished physiologists who have imagined that sensibility, and by that he means sentience, consciousness, was a property belonging to some unknown combination of ethereal elements. But such notions appear to me unphilosophical. I can never believe that any arrangement of the particles of matter 
can give them sensibility, or that intelligence can result from combinations of brute atoms. The materialists have quoted a passage of Locke in favor of their doctrine who seem to doubt, quote, whether it might not have pleased God to bestow a power of thinking on matter. All right, so the hair standing up my arms. Uh, this bit is really interesting because, well, firstly, I'll just I'll just reread to you that last sentence where he. This is a quote from John Locke, where he says, "Whether it might not have pleased God to bestow a power of thinking on matter." What that what that means in a nutshell is, did God create the material world with consciousness that all matter has consciousness? And again, that is almost verbatim what panpsychism is. Here again, we see another summation of this idea of panpsychism going way back to 1829. But even better than that, the way it opens, where he talks about physiologists having imagined that sentience was a property belonging to some unknown combination of ethereal elements or atoms, like what he's describing there is something that we still talk about today. Something that comes up with the hard problem of consciousness, as David Chalmers would say. It's something called emergentism. So most scientists today believe consciousness emerges from the physical world. That it, it didn't always exist, the way that panpsychism says it does. But that it, at some point in development, popped into existence. And all it took was the right prerequisite, you know, structure, once it was once it was built, you know, once it was evolved, then suddenly consciousness. And there's lots of problems with this idea of emergentism. But I think it's interesting that Davy says he doesn't think there's any combination of atoms that would create consciousness. You know, sentience doesn't just emerge like that. So not only do you have in this one paragraph, Davy outlining this idea of pan, what will become panpsychism today. But he also acknowledges this problem of emergentism, which we are still fighting about. The, the, the greatest philosophers and, and physicists are to this day still fighting about. All right, then one of Davy's buddies says, if a principle be supposed necessary to intelligence, and by that he just means consciousness, sentience, if a principle be supposed necessary to intelligence, it must exist throughout animated nature. So again, if, if there's some principle that that's consciousness is based upon, that, that thing has to exist in all of nature. Because some parts of nature become conscious, right? Some parts seem very obviously sentient. There must be a seed there, already there, that makes it possible. That's interesting. Then he says, the elephant approaches nearer to man in intellectual power than the oyster does. And a link of sensitive nature may be traced from the polypus to the philosopher. Now, in the polypus, the sentient principle is divisible. And from one polypus, or one earthworm, may be formed two or three, all of which become perfect animals and have perception and volition. Therefore, at least... The sentient principle has the property in common with matter, that it is divisible. And that is a hell of an insight. 
I never heard the word polypus before, but apparently it just means earthworm. And you guys know, uh, I assume you know, that if you take an earthworm and you cut it in half, you know, uh, both sides of that earthworm will continue to live. And this is what he's pointing to. And I think this is brilliant. This is brilliant. He points to this miracle of sentience by noting that it's divisible, just like an earthworm. It's something like we said before when we were talking about fractals, that one can be many, you know? We're talking about consciousness, but we're talking about an earthworm, right? If an earthworm is sentient, and you can cut it into twos or threes, and all three pieces remain remain sentient, then, it, then consciousness is divisible. And you have from one consciousness three conscious creatures. From one can be many. And that's a reflection of that fractal idea. It also uh, reminds me of something I read in Dr. Shirsted Hughes's book, Modes of Sentience, that we talked about, where he basically had the same argument. He, he outlined the same argument um, being made. It goes something like this. If you believe that consciousness emerges at some point in our evolutionary history, then what you're describing is some kind of a miracle, some kind of a flip being switched. How that happens, still unknown, but something like that happens, uh, you know, um, bewitched wiggles her nose, and suddenly something that wasn't conscious is conscious. That's what emergentism means. And the way scientists like to talk about this is that in this early, early Earth what they call the primordial soup, where the earth is just a deep ocean, just filled with proteins and chemicals that are getting bubbled up from the volcanic vents down under the ocean, and all this chemistry is going on by random, right? And it's completely random. And some, by some miracle, by some supreme accident, that chemistry creates consciousness or life, however you want to put it. And so from that scientific perspective... Consciousness having been created from no consciousness was, it was a miracle. It was almost impossible. It was statistically impossible. It was a random thing that happened. And it only could have happened because the earth has been around, because the cosmos has been around for trillions of years or whatever, 16 billion years or whatever, whatever it is, whatever the number is, I don't know. That they had plenty of time for this accident to, to happen. And what Dr. Shirsted Hughes points out in his book is that if you make that argument, if you're going to be convinced that that's how consciousness got here and not the panpsychist approach that it's always been here, it's been part of energy and part of matter this whole time, then you, what, you, what you have to suggest here is that this crazy, unrealistic, statistically impossible miracle that caused something that wasn't conscious to become conscious, that that thing happens, that miracle happens countless times every second. And by that he means every time something is born, every time a cell divides, you know, that those things are splitting consciousness. And one cell becomes two and they're both conscious. Remember, just like the earthworm. Or one human being gives birth to another human being and it's conscious too. How'd that happen? How did the consciousness get there? How did that happen? This crazy, unrealistic, impossible miracle of emergentism happens not just once in our primordial past. It happens countless times every second. How do you explain that? I think that's the fact that that is, is in this book is 
amazing. All right, so now we go back to the stranger. And he says, physiologists prove that a certain perfection of the machinery of the body is essential to the exercise of the powers of the mind. But they do not prove that the machine is the mind. Fucking A, man. That is, that is mind-matter dualism. That's the idea that we get from Descartes, but also an idea that you see in Plato and that you see in Christianity. You know, the idea that the soul and the body are somehow different. And you, you, again, you get that argument here. He says, he says that, uh, you know, the body is essential to, to, you know, consciousness. You have to have, it has to be embodied somehow. So you definitely need a body. And the more perfect the machinery is, like the more sophisticated the brain is, the more sophisticated the consciousness seems to be. But the brain is not the same as the consciousness. The mind is not the same. And he goes on, he says, Without the eye, there can be no sensations of vision. Without the brain, there could be no recollected ideas. But neither the optic nerve nor the brain can be considered the percipient principle, the conscious part, right? It's not the brain that's consciousness. Creatures without a brain are still conscious, like an earthworm, as an example. Then he says, they are but the instruments of a power which has nothing in common with them. And that power is consciousness. And it has nothing in common with the brain or the optic nerve. And yet somehow they, they work together. Then he says, the external world is to us nothing but a cluster of sensations. And in looking back, our own, our own being we find one principle, which, which may be called the monad, or self, constantly present, intimately associated with sensations, which we call our own body. That's interesting. So, when he says that the external world is to us nothing but a cluster of sensations, that's an interesting way of looking at it. It's like, we look out at the world and we see... We think we see things. We see space. We see objects. We see transformation going on of all kinds, motion and action and cause and effect. We think we see all of that stuff. Um, but really, all we're, all we're getting from our experience of the world are conscious experiences, different sensations. And so there's a way of looking at the world not as a, as a geometrical structure of space and time full of objects and forces, but simply a cluster of sensations. He says, and if we look at ourselves, what we find is something he, he calls the monad, or the self. It, and it's associated with our sensations. It's, it's something like our body that we associate with the consciousness that, that we, it's, we seem to think is somehow in our body, you know? And he calls it the monad, which is interesting because that just means the one thing. And you can think about yourself like in a young, like a Jungian sense. You can think about yourself as the thing that's constant throughout time. So your body changes, the world changes, but the whole time you're, you're on this ride we call life, you, you still consider yourself this one unchanging part that's been riding along in your tra- transforming body, that's been riding along in the transforming earth, that's been riding along in the transforming cosmos. The one stable thing in, in your existence is the monad. It's yourself. And because it's called a monad, the one thing, I just can't help but point out that's what mystic experience tells you. 
God is one. Material reality is one thing. And that one thing is the same thing that's responsible for your sentience. All right, he goes on, he says, We can fix no beginnings to its operations. We can place no limits to them. We are conscious of an, inf an infinite variety of dreams, and there is a strong analogy for believing in an infinity of past experiences. And human life may be regarded as a type of infinite and immortal life. All right, so now we're getting to the immortality bit. And there's promises in religion about immortality. You know, people are afraid of death. You know, they're afraid of, of it being over. As much as we like to bitch about life, we seem to really don't want it to end, you know, um, with, a rare, with a rare exception of the suicidal person or the crazy person. As hard as it is, we, we, we don't want our experiences to end, and that's where the fear of death comes from. And so religion oftentimes promises immortality. You know, you can see that in Gnosticism, you can see it in Christianity, you can see it in Buddhism with Nirvana, uh, you know, this promise of immortality. And it's funny because what Davy's doing here is he's, he's, he's saying, look, if you, consider, if you consider the monad, if you consider the thing that really exists, the thing that you, that you think of as yourself, to be unchanging and eternal, and you put that in the, prospect, in the perspective of Davy's vision of this reincarnation, this process of reincarnation where the soul is constantly transforming and changing and reexisting again and again and again, that what you have is an image of immortal life. It's consciousness recycled and reused over and over and over, no beginning and no end. That is immortal life. It's a different way of looking at it, right? Just like Davy tried to show us a different way of looking at like the realm of, of um, the gods or the, or the spiritual realm, not as some place infinitely distant from us or some other dimension, but just up there in space where you can look up and see, you know, oh, look, you know, there's, there's Mars. That's, that's where this, this other place is. You know, it's a different way of looking at spiritual ideas as in the here and now. And even this idea of immortal life as something existing in you and I rather than in some spiritual place or some, you know, otherworldly place within God. And all of this stuff, very, very panpsychic leaning, you know. All right, he goes on, he says, the whole history of intellect is a history of change. And we retain the memory only of those changes which may be useful to us. The child forgets what happened to it in the womb. The recollections of the infant likewise before two years are soon lost. Yet many of the habits acquired in that age are retained through life. So that is a better example of what I was trying to explain before about functions becoming unconscious, you know? It's like you're never going to lose them because they become part of your, yourself at this deepest level. Then he goes on, The sentient principle gains thoughts by material sensations, excuse me, the, the sentient principle gains thoughts by material instruments, and its sensations change as those instruments change. In an old age, the mind falls asleep to awake to a new existence. All right, so there's a lot there too. When he says that the sentient principle gains thoughts by material instruments, what he means by that is that sentience requires embodiment. Right? It has to be in a body in order to have sensations, in order to be conscious, right? 
So it's something like saying uh, to be embodied is a part of being conscious. And there's an analogy there that says something like God is required for there to be material reality. If God is the, is the sentience component, if they're the one and the same thing, that is, is the, the way of understanding the relationship between God and the material world. You can't have one without the other. And then when he says that its sensations change as those instruments change. So imagine God is in a human being and you're having experiences. And as you change, your experiences change. And so God gets to, gets to experience through you all sorts of different experiences. And it just reminds me of this idea of the being generator that I've talked about uh, from my own mystic experience where I had this, this sort of image that, that occurred to me of a, a process, not unlike what we talked about with Alfred North Whitehead, where, where God is consciousness and consciousness is experiencing itself because Experience is what consciousness does, you know? If God is the one thing that exists, like the mystic experience tells you, then what it's experiencing is itself. What Davey's saying is that that experience is going on in you and I and in, the, and in the cosmos. And as we change, we change God, you know? We change sentience. And so there's this back and forth process of transformation between us and God, back and forth. That's this unending process that I call the being generator. But enough of that. All right, he goes on. The intellect of man is naturally limited and imperfect, but this depends upon its material machinery. And in a higher form, it may be imagined to possess infinitely higher powers. So this is basically, he's basically saying here that Consciousness is what it is. If it exists in a plant um, versus in a, in a human being, that the machinery of the, of the embodiment, the plant versus the human body, that's going to make a difference in how, in how the consciousness can express itself. And, and to go back to Davy's vision, if you compared a human being to one of these alien creatures on Jupiter, that their material machinery is far higher and more refined than ours. So their ability to be conscious is, is superior to ours. And we don't exactly know what that means, but we can try to understand that by looking at the difference between our consciousness and the consciousness of a flower. You know, Imagine we encountered a creature as high above us as we are above a flower in terms of our perception and consciousness. You know, what, what might that be? It's like we don't even know. All right, he goes on, he says, From the infinite, infinite variety of perception, it seems extremely probable that there must be in the brain and nerve matter a nature far more subtle than anything discovered in them by observation, and that the immediate connection between the sentient principle and the body may be established. Hmm, that's interesting. So he's saying that there's something in matter itself that's more subtle than can be observed by observation or by experiment. There's something already in matter that is the connection between sentience and matter. And I don't know, I don't know a, a better way of describing panpsychism. So this is what we're getting from Davy over and over again here. Different for, formulations of this idea of panpsychism. He says, I sometimes imagine that many of those powers which have been called instinctive 
belong to the more refined clothing of the spirit. Conscious, indeed, seems to have some undefined source. That's funny, man. When he says undefined source, it reminds me of the way I say and said earlier, the unknown part of ourselves, the undefined source. You know, that's, that's a part of us, but it's, but it's also not a part of us, you know, at the same time. And, and that's something that I, I like to imagine. I, I call it the unconscious. I, I like to use Young's term. I think it, that it, it, you know, it's, it's appropriate. And Carl Jung says that, that the unconscious is where the archetypes exist. And archetypes are, are exactly what Davy is, is calling here instinctive forces, instincts. You know, we're to, Davy and Jung are apples and apples here. All right, he says, A consciousness of good and evil, constantly belonging to the sentient principle in man. So that's just a sort of part of a sentence, but I wanted to bring it to you because he's also saying, he's also bringing this moral picture in, in, you know, into this idea of sentience when he says that a consciousness of good and evil is a part of being sentient, like being aware of good and evil. And to that, I can just say, it's, it's, it sounds to me like another fractal picture, Right, it sounds to me like good and evil are opposites, you know, and just like we talked about before with the Ouroboros or the Syzygy, uh, when you when you take overarching concepts that are opposites, but in but include all possibilities like good and evil, there's nothing that can fall outside of it. You're going to capture everything if you if you look at that dichotomy, good and evil. Another way of doing that is subject object. Another way of doing that is being and non-being, we can go on and on. But you take any conceptualization of opposites that encompass everything, and you take those things together, and the symbol that you've got is what Jordan Peterson calls the Ouroboros, what Carl Jung calls the Syzygy. What you have is the union of opposites, the generative union of opposites. That is the way that ancient people uh, conceptualized God. And what he's saying is, this idea, this union of opposites, um, in particular, this good and evil opposite, the union of opposites, it has this moral component, right? Because when we talk about good and evil, that's what we mean. And that, we, that that's indistinguishable from, from sentience, that you can't remove that. It goes hand in hand with being conscious. It reminds you of the story of the Garden of Eden. You know, Adam and Eve eat the fruit and they become conscious, they become aware of good and evil. Okay, so now we go back to the stranger who says, On my idea, conscious is the frame of mind fitted for its probation and mortality. Obedience to its precepts not only prepares for a better state of existence in another world, but is likewise calculated to make us happy here. We are constantly taught to renounce selfish gratifications to forget our body, to associate our pleasures with mind, to fix our affections upon the one supreme being, and that we are capable of forming to ourselves an imperfect idea of an infinite mind is a strong presumption of our own immortality and of the distinct relation which our finite knowledge bears to eternal wisdom. Motherfucker, what a paragraph. Okay. So what is the stranger saying here? He's saying, he's saying that the fact that we can conceive of an infinite God 
reflects some equally infinite capacity within ourselves. God, the God within. If we were not ourselves infinite and eternal, we could not conceive of either. That's something like that. And then back to Davy, he says, I am pleased with your views. They coincide with those I formed at the time my imagination was employed upon the vision of the Colosseum. The doctrine of the materialist was always, even in my youth, a cold, heavy, dull, and insupportable doctrine to me, and necessarily tending to atheism. So I'm going to stop there for a second just to point out the materialist view is just that everything's made of matter, everything's physical, that there is no spirit, there is no God, there's nothing going on beyond the physical. Everything can be explained you know, by the, by the physical laws and the material that's in the cosmos. End of story. So you can imagine if you have that sort of um, if you have that sort of way of thinking, like you know most scientists do, uh, most modern Western people do. Um, there's not a lot of room in there for God, you know. That it's just going to make you an atheist to think about things that way. And there's a question that can be asked that that's something like, if you limit your thinking to just a material way of thinking, just a physical way of thinking, and you allow yourself to be an atheist as a result. Um, did you make a mistake? And are you missing something? You know? So then I'll pick up, pick up here where he says, I saw in all the powers of matter the instruments of the deity, the sunbeams, the breath of the zephyr, awakened animation and forms prepared by divine intelligence to receive it. The insentient seed, the slumbering egg, which were to be vivified, appeared like words of a divine mind. I saw love as the creative principle in the material world, and this love as a divine attribute. Then I felt connected with new sensations and indefinite hopes, a thirst for immortality. So, this is interesting. It's one of the best quotes, at least how it opens. I saw in all the powers of matter the instruments of the deity. So when Davy says, you, you know, he's examining experimentally, remember he was a scientist, so he's examining matter experimentally, trying to understand what it is, and he saw in the workings of matter and energy at the most basic level in, in, in the material world, the instrument of God. So a panpsychist likes to put consciousness, which I'll, I, again, I'll call God, I have no problem with that, um, into matter. That, that matter and consciousness exist, sentience exist as one thing. And they're not like Descartes told us, two things, but one thing. And they exist at the most basic level of matter, not just, at, not just in the creatures we call alive, but down even to the very atoms. And so you've got God within even the atoms. God within you as a human being, and God within even the atoms. And what they're doing what the atoms are doing and all the things they do that make the physical world possible, that's the instrument of God, he says. And the God within it, he said, it's the insentient seed, the slumbering egg. God goes in and, and makes it alive. And he, he says that they need to be vivified. That's what he means. You know, God goes in and makes it alive. Then he says this bit at the end, I saw love as the creative principle in the material world. And this love is a divine attribute. 
and then I felt connected with new sensations and indefinite hopes, a thirst for immortality. Now, I can't, I can't help but point out that when you talk to somebody who's had a mystic experience or a deeply psychedelic experience, they're going to tell you exactly those three things. They're going to come away with three powerful takeaways. Love, connection, and immortality. That's it. That's exactly it. Connection, because all things are connected, right? We, we, you know, the mystic intuition is that everything is one and that you're connected to all of it. You know, the immortality is exactly that, that consciousness is not something that is born or dies, but it's, it, it's the foundation of reality itself. It's the only infinite and immortal thing. Might as well call that God. And that experience is felt as a deep feeling of love. And that's exactly what we get from Davy. And that brings me to my conclusion. Here we go. From Davy's vision of cosmic unity and reincarnation, we move into dreams and altered states of consciousness, which mirror the same revelatory mystery. With Davy's last breath, he told the story of his vision, recognizing that he could not die without sharing this great truth to which he'd reluctantly kept to himself for a lifetime. In the same breath, he tells us of his dreams and a glimpse of the future he received in the vision of a young woman he'd first met in a fever dream before she was ever even born. Davy emphasizes the unexplainable, the mysteries of existence that can be experienced but not explained or reasoned away. It was these uncanny occurrences that showed him the deepest truth of being, that under it all, Way down at the foundation of things, there is nothing but mystery. The unknowable, the unconscious, the matrix of being itself. It is this gnosis, this secret knowledge that Davy wished to share before he could no longer. He was desperate to, even at the expense of his great scientific reputation, share the hard-won treasures of a lifetime of seeking. Davy's treasure, it turns out, is a spiritual one, perhaps spirit itself. He shines a light on sentience as the force of vitality in the world and as the instinct to religion. Davy saw God as sentient, as spirit in the religious sense. He saw this same spirit within himself and all things, the animating force we call life. And this was the key realization, God within. Once Davy imagined the thing responsible for material reality is the same thing responsible for his own consciousness, he edges ever closer to formulating panpsychism. Amazingly, he reasons through all the deepest and still unsolved problems of sentience. Emergentism, the incompleteness of materialism, mind-matter dualism, and the correlation problem between brain states and consciousness. All of these are addressed in turn. And the icing on the philosophical cake, the miracle of sentience, is explained through the analogy of an earthworm. Davy points to the earthworm, who is cut into many pieces, which heal and exist as independent beings. 
How did they achieve consciousness? Which part of the worm carried it? How did it share it with its pieces? And Davy acknowledges that sentience is divisible, that one can be many and many one, the great mystic insight. And this cuts to the heart of the hard problem of consciousness that we struggle with even today. If consciousness emerges from nature, how does it arise? Where does it come from? If it was a one in a centillion accident of nature, how does this statistically impossible accident occur countless times every second? In every birth, in every cell division, in every severed earthworm, we bear witness to a miracle, to an impossibility, to the immortality of sentience. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work, thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.